open up a copy of the scriptures with me, please, to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 2 through 11. Verses 2 through 11. The word of the Lord says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider Him that endured such contradiction of sinners against Himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not resisted, ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then ye are bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of the flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not so much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but He for our profit, that we might be partakers of His holiness. Now, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of His Word. Will you go with me in prayer, please? Our Father in Heaven, Lord, we quiet our souls before You. and Father, we do pray that You would make Yourself known to us. That, Father, through Your Spirit, You would reveal to us this text, what You want us to learn. Father, we pray that You would give us teachable hearts. Father, we ask that You would mold and make us into the sons and daughters who are listening, who are watching for Your work in our lives. Father, exercise us, we pray, with the wise, the firm, but yet gentle hand of a Father. Leave us, O God, we pray, as Your sons and as Your daughters, not to ourselves. Come now, we pray, God. Exalt Christ. Exalt Your majestic, mysterious throne of sovereignty over us as Your people. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In our Christian walks, we, from time to time, will come upon texts that, depending on where we're at, in the ups and downs, the twos and fro's, the, the valleys, the mountaintop experiences that we have as God's people on the side of glory, 
certain passages will truly exercise us. And I can tell you, my friends, my brothers and sisters, this text has exercised me. Without going into great detail, I would just say that this has been a very difficult year in my life. And this text has met me in, you could say, the tail end of that year. The dust seems to be settling. Still many uh, situations lie ahead, I'm sure, where the dust will be flared up. Satan will come in and with the broom start sweeping up old wounds and old accusations and old lies. And this text has exercised me in knowing that it is going to be well with my soul in so much as I and as you, wherever you are at in the season of your Christian life, will receive what God is doing. What God is doing. If we are not open, if we are not teachable to what God is doing in and through our lives as His sons and His daughters, brothers and sisters, we will not grow. We will not mature. We will stay in the little league. We will stay in the race that's for the kids always. We will never get to the point where we're like the Roman Greco athletes that with all of their mind, with all of their singular purpose, train for a race to win it and to make it unto the end. And so we began to tiptoe down into this text and I felt last week that it was absolutely vital to understand what they had forgotten, which was such a concern to him that we understood who was the author of the chastening. Recall the first original audience. The chastening was the context of their homes being taken, their livelihoods being removed from them, their family put into prison, and even in their own social dynamics as converted Jews, they were, you saw in John 12 this morning, receiving the hostility of their own family members. In the context of that type of suffering, he comes to them with this proverb, chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, and he says, you have forgotten that the Lord chastens and disciplines disciples. Remember the Greek word, we looked at it, sometimes translated as nurture, sometimes translated instruction. In the midst of that type of persecution by the hands of evil people, he was telling them what, brothers and sisters? That when you remove all of that by way of recap, the Lord is behind all of this. Didn't he? In the context of suffering unimaginable persecution, what was intended to anchor their souls. The knowledge that God was behind it all and that He was doing something. He wants them to see, I believe, what we're going to look at today. That the disciplining, the chasing of the Lord is a demonstration that He loves you. That He cares about you. It's an evidence of His adoption of you as one of His sons and daughters. And that discipline, while it may be grievous, you saw in the text, at the end yields blessed fruit. Blessed fruit. And so we're going to continue in verses uh, 7 through 9 to kind of look at the relationship between God's disciplining and suffering. And today we're going to make it to verses 10 and 11 where I said that's the dessert where you see the blessed benefits of the Lord's chastening. The title of our message today very simply is God's disciplining and its blessings. And I want to approach it really just asking three questions. What does God's discipline evidence? I believe we see that in the text. What are responses to God's discipline, verse 7, if ye endure. Obviously, there's some sort of risk there to respond the wrong way. And what are the benefits, which we will see in verses 10 and 11. Now, 
To help get into this, I want you to look with me in your sermon notes from a selection of Scripture from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. I think that this is a perfect, you could say, teaser into this overall um, theme of a loving father correcting wayward children. To help build us up to what the text is showing us, God's discipline, His discipleship, His instruction, His chastening is evidence of. Now the context here is they have went through their 40 miserable years in the wilderness. Okay, Um, They're coming into the possession of the reward of the land of Canaan. Now listen to this reminder of that treacherous 40 years. Long season of affliction. Long season of suffering. Long season of correction. Many of us cannot go through one day or one week (laughs) here in the frail American West, right? I mean, the air condition's off this morning, and many of you, I'm sure, are suffering. Lord forbid you're thinking to yourself, I can't believe someone let the air conditioner not work. How could Pastor Doug do that? I know you're not thinking that. You're better than that. Let's look here. Deuteronomy 8. Moses is saying to them, All the commands which I command thee this day shall you observe to do, that you may live and multiply, and go in and possess the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers. You hear the blessing after this long season. Thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee. Who led them, friends? The Lord. These 40 years. Where? In the wilderness. Why? The text tells us. To humble thee. To prove thee. To know what is in thine heart. Was that to give the omniscient all-knowing God knowledge? No. So that you can know what's in your heart. Whether thou wouldest keep His commandments or no. And He humbled thee, verse 3. And He suffered thee. He, the Lord, suffered thee to hunger and feed thee with, you could say, the bare minimum. Manna. Which thou knewest not neither did thy fathers know that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. Here we see an interpretation to the 40 years of what the Lord was doing in their life of suffering. They had forgotten, you see, Ethiel, that We don't live life independent of God on material things like bread and the gooder, finer things that we have access to in our food menu list here in the West. No, we we live by that, but oh, we need the Word of the Lord to help us to fully live. And they had forgotten that, and they were taught that. All of that 40 years of experience was a hard, long lesson to teach that one thing. Notice here too, verse 4. Thy remnant, their clothing, wax not old upon thee, neither did thy foot swell these forty years. I was watching you. I was behind it all. Thou shalt also consider in thine heart, here it is, that as a man chasteneth, corrects, disciples, disciplines his son, so the Lord thy God chasteneth thee. Brothers and sisters, what are we reading here in Hebrews? That God is the same today as He was yesterday and as He will be forevermore with regard to His fatherly disposition and approach to His people, His children. If there's humbling that needs to take place, there's going to be humbling that's going to take place but not without careful, measured provisions. 
Their raiment did not wax old. They had manna. They had the necessities. They may not have had air condition. They may not have had steaks. They may not have money to go out to eat, you see. But they had what they needed. And it was that that the Lord used to teach them the thing that they needed the most. That sets us up for to see that, verse 4, that the Lord's discipline, as we're seeing in our text today, it's evidence of love. Look at back in Hebrews here, verse 6. I can't get any clearer in this. I mean, the text says verbatim, for whom the Lord loves, He corrects. And then look at verse 7. You've got, again, this uh, fatherly figure to a son language. If ye endure chastening, God it deals with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father doesn't correct or doesn't chasten? Look at verse 10. They verily for a few days, as referring to earthly fathers, we'll look at that in a little bit, chastised us, they chastened us after their own pleasure, but he does it for our profit. So that, it goes on to say, and we'll look at that in a little bit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. And from these texts, and especially with Deuteronomy 8 in the backdrop, it's clear that the disciplining, the chastening of the Lord is never to be understood as condemning. It's never designed by him to inflict punishment for the mere sake of inflicting punishment. Or in some way, it's him as a divine being venting his anger in similar passions that we have as fallen men. Never like that. Rather, it's always to be viewed as what is ultimately best for us as His children. That's how the correct biblical interpretation of the Lord who controls everything, when He brings chastisement and discipling and instruction in our life, that's how it's to be viewed. Now we can be fortified in this understanding, not just by what the text is showing us here, but recall that he's told, telling them something they forgot. It was an important instruction and in wisdom from the book of Proverbs chapter 3. right? And when we go back to that book of wisdom, which he's pulling from, these first century Jews would have been very familiar with other passages that denote in the book of wisdom that a loving father would never leave his son or daughter to themselves. A loving father always will be involved in some measure of chastening and in disciplining. In fact, Scripture lays it primarily on the earthly father's square responsibility to take up this mantle. And I don't know of any of you, brother, who are suffering from this, but if any of you were passive fathers, hopefully you're going to see here a sense of conviction from the example of our Heavenly Father, that you are to be involved in the chastening of your children. Proverbs 13.24, they would have been very familiar with this. And he's reminding them, this chastening that's coming from the Lord in this form of suffering, this form of persecution, is not to be understood as God is angry with you. He doesn't want anything else to do with you. He doesn't want you to come to the dinner table and dine and eat with Him. He doesn't want you to bear His name. No, it's because He loves you. Proverbs 13.24 He that spares his rod hates his son. But he that loves him chastens him often. Proverbs 5.21-24 For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his goings. His own iniquity shall take, care, or shall take the wicked himself and he shall be holden with the cords of his sins. He shall die, that man without discipline, without instruction. And in the greatness of his folly, he shall go astray. And so, again, chastening in Scripture is connected with what Hebrews 6, 7, and 10 is telling us as a loving Father seeking to do what? Protect us from ourselves. Proverbs twenty nine fifteen. lastly, the rod and reproof grant wisdom. Now, in this case, the instruction or the chastening is connected with physical disciplining, right? And it does, we saw last week, sometimes include that. But when we read Hebrews and we're understanding chastening and discipline of the Lord, it doesn't always include that. 
it just carries with it the broader meaning. The broader reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself bringeth this mother to shame. In this book of wisdom from a father to a son, we learn that proper instruction and even physical correction is a vital and fundamental way in which a parent, especially as I said, the father evidences his true love for a child. An inspired writer is wishing for us to make this connection with the Lord's disciplining here. Because if we miss that, we will be prone to misappropriate what the Lord's doing in our lives. If we don't recognize that this suffering, whatever it may be, this trial, whatever it may be, is ultimately because He loves me, not because He's angry with me. If you miss that, you're going to misappropriate the suffering. God didn't do this. God's not doing nothing here, like we said last week. This is just the random forces of evil unleashed upon me. You're going to miss it. You're going to misappropriate what the Lord's trying to teach you. Brothers and sisters, we of course don't have it recorded in our Bibles, but we do have recorded for us that the wilderness generation of the Israelites, did they take that suffering in that 40 years with just a smile on their face? No. No, you remember one of the most grievous sins amongst the people of God when He's doing something. What surfaced time and time again and God had to continue to keep them there? <laughs> continue to feed them the manna until we got this thing worked out too was the murmuring and the complaining. Why? They were misappropriating what the Lord was doing. You see. Not only is it very clear that the Lord's discipline is evidencing His love for us. But notice, look back in our text. It's evidencing. It supports. It reminds us of our blessed adoption as sinful, lowly creatures into His family. Verse 5, He does this unto you as unto children. Pulling from the genre of the Proverbs book. Verse 6, And corrects every son whom he receives. Verse 7, Deals with you again as with sons. Verse 8, this language, it's as if when you don't have this discipline, you're as bastards. You're not my children. You're not in my adopted family. In addition to God's concerning and wise love for us, the text also is highlighting that His chasing is also evidence of us belonging to Him. We have been purchased by Christ. We have been brought into His family. And He loves us far too much to leave us the way we are. And so it is evidence of us being one of His. You see the contrast in verse 8? The children of God are not like bastard children who don't know anything about parental or fatherly correction or disciplining. They have no one to instruct them. They are that poor fool in Proverbs who's left to his own devices who it says will destroy his own soul. Listen to this statistics I I found about, I was just considering this idea of a bastard and maybe there's even people who will hear this message or even our own small church, people who never really had that true biological earthly father in the midst and how, oh how, I hope you see in this text of how the Lord, we'll get to it in a minute, how He chastens you, how He disciplines you in your response to that. I hope you see how sweet it is that He, your Heavenly Father, He is your Father. And so while you may not be intimately super close to a Father here on earth, the text is trying to exalt and to show the blessed work of Christ of bringing you into His adoptive family and that He does love you and that He does care for you. He is watching the remnant that you're wearing. He knows what plans for He has you going on. He knows what work He has you to do. Some troubling statistics about fatherless children in the U.S. and what ought to make us even more thankful that we see this as being evidence of our adoption from the U.S. National Center for Fathering. 85% of youths in prison, they come from fatherless homes. 71% of high school dropouts come from fatherless homes where a father's not in the home doing what? Discipline, lovingly correcting them. 90%. This is staggering of all homeless 
and runaway children are from fatherless home, homes. Now, part of what the text wants us to grasp about the Lord's discipline is that you see it confirms we belong to Him. We are not like those bastard children. We have a Father who will correct us. It's His evidence of His love for us and it's evidence that we belong to a family. A family that supersedes any earthly family. As you see in your notes, it, its presence in our life, it ought to grant us assurance that we are adopted. Think for a moment how that if we reject, as the text has admonished us not to do, this chastising of the Lord, think for a moment if we take it lightly or we misappropriate this Lord's training and discipling of us, we're actually going to cause confusion in our lives about our assurance of our adoption in our place in His family. Right? If you're misappropriating it, if you're not accepting it, and you're trying to make other excuses for why things are happening, it can begin to not right away, but imperceptibly start chipping away if you really belong to Him. I mean, because after all, if I'm truly one of Jesus's and I've been brought into this family, uh, surely, I mean, he wouldn't let these things be happening to me, you say. Well, friends, it is wrong to ever conclude that suffering and trial somehow demonstrates that you're not one of God's. In fact, what we're learning here in the text is it demonstrates that you truly are. The Lord's design through chastening and through disciplining in connection with your adoption as one of His son and daughters, is never to cause doubt, but in contrast, it's there to give you assurance that He's doing something because you're one of His. Spurgeon puts it really well here. He says, It seems to me that doubt is worse than the trial itself. So you see, when you get fixed... And you humbly submit to what this text is teaching, it removes doubt. It adds clarity, no matter what may come. Because if you're not fixed and firm with the assurance of your place as a son or daughter of the Most High God and His loving, chastening, disciplined hand in your life, when those things come, what do they do? Ooh, they start swirling around the doubts, don't they? And Spurgeon says, it seems to me that that kind of doubt is much worse than the trial itself. Remove that doubt. Remove all of that. And accept the truth that this is God's chasing hand in your life. One wrong conclusion at this point could say, okay, so let me connect the dots here. Chastening chastisement, correction, instruction, if that evidences my adoption, if that's meant to grant me boldness of assurance that I'm one of God's, then I ought to invite suffering. I ought to invite, you know, difficulties and things like that, right? Friends, such a thought is foolish. And the reason is very simply, as you see in your notes, because if you really are one of His sons and daughters, Guess what? The correction, the nurturing, the discipling, it's going to take place organically. Do you know how I know that? Well, number one, uh, you are, the Bible describes, a child of light. You're different. The Bible calls us peculiar. Uh, These people in the first century coming into a full-orbed understanding of the ancient faith, Right? They had the oracles, but now they're connecting the dots by the grace of God and they see Jesus is the Messiah. They're you know, being persecuted right, because they live in a fallen world and now they're children of light, children of truth, so forth and so on. And Jesus says in John 15, 18, If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. Just give it some time. You'll receive a little nurturing, a little chastisement. Okay? You don't have to go inviting it. It'll come. Because you live, if you're truly living for Christ, you will bump up against the haters. You're going to bump up against those who want to cancel you, want to silence you, don't want to hear the truth. Keep that to yourself. This is a safe space. 
We don't want to be told we're sinners, etc., etc. But give it some time, because if Romans 7 is true, in the process of sanctification, your flesh will organically produce within you some trials. Unless, unfortunately, you're that man in the parable of Christian uh, Pilgrim's Progress locked in the iron cage and you have subdued, you have stomped your conscience into oblivion and you can sin and you have no regard. And what's that man trapped in that cage says? He says, the grace of God, the proclamation of the grace of God, it does nothing for me. But, if you haven't reached that point, you'll say like Paul in Romans 7, oh wretched man that I am, I hate this. This suffering, this affliction, the things I want to do, oh God, I do not do. God, please, three times Paul has removed this from me. He hated it. It was a thorn in his side. And what did, we said it last week, what did God say to him? In that affliction, in that suffering, in that discipline, that nurturing that God was doing in Paul's life, my grace is sufficient. And what did Paul do? Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, Paul came into the community, the people of God. Did he not, brothers and sisters? He said, I need God more. Oh, pray for me. And he would find James... Uh, the book of James chapter 5 verse 15 that righteous man that faithful brother who prayers avail much and he would confide in him he would open his heart to his brother in Christ his friend in Christ so we don't need to go out here and look for chastisement and suffering in order to think that we're reassured we're the adopted sons and daughters of God just live as a Christian And it'll come. It'll come. But, if the Lord's discipline through various types and sources of trials is a token of assurance, and indeed this is what the text is saying, if it is a token of assurance of our adoption, then the lack of it, the lack of it, should be of great concern because its absence is testifying to something. We cannot escape in this text the obvious conclusion of what it's teaching. Where there is no discipling, training, instruction, chastisement of the Lord, there is no grounds for assurance to be had that you belong to Him. That's in the text. If ye endure. If if the Lord loves those who He chastens. And Proverbs teaches us in the book of Wisdoms that what kind of father is it that doesn't discipline his son or chasten his son? And you're not experiencing chastening or discipline. My nine-year-old could get up here and tell you, maybe you're not one of his sons. But before we progress any further in this point, Allow me to say that it would be wrong at this point to conclude that unless I'm being thrown down into a dark prison in China for the name and the cause of Christ, or unless I'm suffering some physical disease, or unless I'm enduring through what they faced during the wilderness generation for 40 years, Me and my wife just celebrated 22 years of blessed marital bliss. And she probably will tell you that 15 of those years were in the wilderness. (laughs) You may be saying to yourself, well, uh, maybe I don't have before I think that I got to have like this unbearable spouse, these unbearable children that I got to bear up with. And I guess, I guess there's no evidence that I'm being chastised by the Lord. This would be wrong thinking, brothers and sisters. This would be wrong thinking. Because as we are coming into Deuteronomy 8, that long season, and it was 40 years, okay, I emphasize that. In the providence of God, a loving Father who's correcting, instructing, teaching, sometimes physically chastening His sons and daughters, there are these blessed seasons of rest. 
There are these blessed seasons where the dark clouds are not hovering over us, where the dust of affliction and suffering and family drama aren't being stirred up in our marriages and our parental work. Amen? And it would be wrong to think that, you know what, God, you must not love me because there's no drama, no suffering going on in my life. No, friends, that would be wrong to think that. It would be wrong to think that. To help us kind of understand that is not only to look at the history of the Israelites as they're coming into the land of Canaan and they had some moments of respite, you know. They had some moments of ease. Vineyards not planted by them. Shall, shall we be reminded of what they got? Um, buildings built that they didn't have to build, right? Church history is the same way. There were some seasons in church history where it was brutal and there's other times, you know. The church is always at war. You understand that. I don't have to tell you that. You understand all of that. But to help us to kind of see this aspect, this dimension of being corrected by the Lord, and it doesn't necessarily mean it looks like that, even though it may look like that. Look in the notes you have. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. This is important. All Scripture, it says, is given by inspiration of God. Why? Well, because he's wanting to use it to do something. He didn't just have a man write a book, right? He, he wrote the book. Amen? Do y'all believe that, right? Okay. He, he wrote the book. I believe, furthermore, he preserved it perfectly in purity, and we have it in our possession as his church. But that's all another side topic. But notice what it says. It's profitable for doctrine. Uh-oh, here we go. For reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. This is further reiterated in the book of Hebrews, where we're at right now, you remember this, chapter 4, verse 12. The Word of God is quick, it's powerful, it's sharper, this cutting instrument, right? Than any two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Letting these two verses carry the weight that they most certainly carry. We must acknowledge that the Lord's disciplining, His correction, His chastisement, His evidence of His love towards you as one of His adopted children takes place in the heart and the life of God's children. How? Through the administration of God's Word by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this must not be minimized. You may not be going through some horrible marital situation. You may not be going through, etc., etc., of what you think that the Lord's disciplined hand needs to look like. But make no mistake about it. You are still the Roman 7 Christian. And when you come to the Word of God, and it as an instrument of surgical precision cuts through the in the administration of it, accompanied by the Holy Spirit, a deceived thought about yourself, And you say to yourself, yes, Lord, that's true. Is that reproof? Is that correction? But on the flip side, if the Word of God puts His finger by the power of the Spirit on an element in your life and you sit there with your arms crossed, you sit there with your bottom lip out, and you sit there with thoughts and you say to yourself, I'm glad my husband's hearing this. I'm glad my wife's hearing this. Oh, I wish my other extended family could be here to hear this. Guess why? You're not being reproved. You're not being instructed. You're in a very precarious place. We've been making this analogy often. You've got the running shoes on. You've got all the gear on. You may look like a Christian runner, but all you are is a mere professor. And that's what this writer has been addressing the entire time. You profess Christ. You professed you know, that you believe in Him and there's this stuff going on and I'm hearing this and I'm hearing that. Let's just make a road map laid out of what a professor is and what a real runner is who's actually running. This brings us then to the responses of God's discipline. What are some of the responses? I mean, we've touched them a little bit. We see in verse 7, he's laying this out. And he says, if ye endure. Now, brothers and sisters, we can't accept the fact that this is a conditional clause here. 
if ye endure. There is here then an innate ability of even one of God's people who are adopted, who at times are allowing the Holy Spirit, allowing His Word to do the chastising, to do the correction, but can drift, can fall, can, we saw in verse 5, begin to forget. We see here there's a risk of even God's people taking it lightly or misappropriating it. Because remember, He is speaking to professing Christians. And He's telling them in verse 8, is He not, if you're a professing Christian, you all will partake of the chastening of the Lord. There's no exceptions. Because why? God's a Heavenly Father who loves His children. If you're an adopted child, He's going to correct you. And we looked at kind of the nuts and bolts of what that correction may or may not look like. And so, understanding that He's talking to professing Christians, the visible church, and all are going to be partaking of this, and there is a risk of us taking it lightly, this means we ought to be careful how we respond to what the Lord's doing in our lives during the regular day in and day out training instructions of our Heavenly Father. And so this is some fruits of rejection. I mentioned it a little bit, you know, crossing your arms, you know. But think about this. We far too quickly misinterpret hardships in our lives to causes or forces as if God's not involved. That's a rejection of His chastening. Instead of letting God be God, we looked at last week and saying, no, yes, Lord, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? I, I want a teachable spirit. That person I have not, you may think this, most times we do, I have not provoked this at all. I didn't ask for this. I haven't, you know. But Lord, what are you doing in this? What are you teaching me? What are you trying to work out in my heart about what I know of you and of myself? Another fruit of rejection is we too quickly look outside of ourselves at others when we are experiencing suffering. We try to justify certain things in our own life. And the suffering I'm going through wasn't because of my own actions. It wasn't because of anything I said or that I did. It's because they provoked me. They pushed my buttons. Meditating on this because we so easily, if you endure, right, you run the risk of taking it lightly, what He's doing in your life. Friends, think for a moment the greatest commandment that Jesus told us that we've been given. Do you, He asked the question in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, 37, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the part that's been exercising me. In my best week, that's not true. And I know it's not true. And it very well could be that everything, even the difficult year I've had, is meant to help me get here and understand how much more I need Him and love Him and thank Him. A fruit of, uh, a fruit of rejection the Lord's Correction, instruction, discipleship is stubbornness. This refusal to change one's mind or one's course of action despite what He's doing all around you in providence. Boom, 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 boom. And I am not going to give in because I'm right. The stubbornness that God will deal with in the heart of His sons and daughters. It could be stubbornness in so many areas. I was speaking about it in the context of self-justification. You know, but it could, it could be even dealt with too, the stubbornness of habitual sins in one's life. This, this stubbornness that I will not give this up. You will, if you're His, give it up. We saw that in the text. He will deal with you. And he can be very, very creative because he has at his fingertips as the creator all the resources in this created realm. Let your imagination, sanctified imaginations, ponder on that for a minute. What are the fruits of subjection and acceptance? Well, the first fruit of 
acknowledging the Lord's discipline in our life, the right response would be humility. In Scripture, humility is always carried with a theologically, uh, with this idea conveying of a lowliness of mind, a deep sense of one's own unworthiness in the sight of God. You see, if you if you already have that measure of humility and chastening comes along, you're almost kind of prepared to say, you know what? Yeah, uh, there are some things in my life that need to be corrected. And God, I think you are dealing with me in this area. The right response will be humility. Knowing, like I said in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, 37, you don't love God with all your heart, with all your strength, no matter how you think you might. And He's going to bring you down in a self-abasement. He's going to give you a penance for sin, a hatred for sin, and give you more of a teachable spirit. There was a brother at the conference this week, or over the weekend here, that he did this beautiful, wonderful, powerful sermon on how God will give us a teachable spirit. And I said, man, I wish I had your manuscript because I would just take half of your sermon and tell our folks that it was so good. But it, what it did is it really just connected with where I'm at here in Hebrews and where we are as a church to understand and connect with it and what we understand of a loving Father, that that's what He's doing in these sufferings and in these afflictions and whatever trial it is through the administration of the Word or whatever. He's trying to give you a teachable spirit and indeed He will. So that we see in verses 10 and 11 we can receive the benefits of it. The benefits of it. Look at verse 11 because before we even start talking about the benefits we got to recognize as you see in your notes when it's happening it is not joyous. It's grievous. And this reminds us of that old saying where there is no pain there is no gain. But let me ask you a question. Why does it seem so grievous? Why? Because, and he said in verse 5, they, what? Had spiritual amnesia. They forgot the Lord's in this. The Lord's doing something. So their perception of the suffering, their perception of that season of life that they were in in that valley, it's going to be skewed because of their spiritual amnesia. And so, oh, this is so grievous. Now, let me be very careful. I attempted to do this last week because I never for a moment want to use the Word of God to make someone who truly is going through a very dark, difficult, emotional, psychological valley in their life to ever think that that's not valid and that they're over-exaggerating it. No, that is not of Christ. That is not of Christ. There is to be compassion. And there is to be love. And there is to be support for people when they are undering the chastening rod of the Lord because you see, it is grievous. He scorneth His Son who He loves. And not only is it grievous for them before we cast our pharisaical judgment glances at them under the chastening rod of God and thinking, well, They're just suffering the consequences of their own choices and their own actions. They should have followed the law, word of God, and they wouldn't have got in that situation. Friends. Friends. We're missing the big picture if we're thinking like that. Missing the big picture. That's no accident. We looked at it last week. Even our own sins that we commit in the volitional will as creatures have been decreed by Him to do a work so that we can get to 10 and 11 here in just a moment. But it's grievous and it's real. We feel it. And it's not only real to that person, but have you ever noticed in your own experience it's grievous to those who are around them? Their family. The church. The body of the church. But it's grievous. And we can be carried away in that grief. We can be carried away in that depression. We can, we can get down and, and, and take long periods of time and glory be to God for truly His. We will come out of it. But it seems so grievous because we forget, verse 5, and connected with that, we forget that correction is grievous unto Him, Proverbs 15.10, that forsakes the way. That word forsakes the way. The word forsake in the Hebrew, it carries with it the idea of neglecting, not paying enough attention to. 
And so, Proverbs 3, so Proverbs, all of it's designed to teach you about your Heavenly Father to you. That is constantly to be in the back of our minds as His sons and His daughters. So that when these storms pop up, and they will indeed pop up, we don't neglect. We don't forget. And it'd be bearable. The ship's going to get water in it, indeed. The ship's going to get a lot of water in it. And uh, there may be some nights where it seems as if the moon never shines through the clouds. And you don't know if you're going north, south, west, or east, right? But if you don't forsake the way, if you don't forget that the captain who's steering the ship ultimately in whatever's going on, it's bearable, isn't it? He's got a plan. I know He loves me. It's a, it's, a, it's a token of my assurance that He loves me. And He's doing something. And it's going to be great. It's going to be great. Our flesh likes to be content with good things. Marriage is going pretty good. Yeah. Job's going pretty good. It's good. 401k, right? It's going good. Didn't mean to point you, brother. <laughs> You're at that season of life, I'm sure, hopefully. You know, I don't know. Um, but God wants to give us something great. And, 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 and I know what you're thinking right now. Pastor Doug, this is unusual for you to talk about uh, uh, us getting great things. I mean, are you listening to Kenneth Copeland? Are you, are you, are you getting in the word faith movement here? What are you talking about? Friends, the greatness that God wants us to have, it, 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 it transcends what we think is good as His sons and daughters. And you will not get that communicable gift that you, we see now in verse 10 unless there's some chastisement going on. And that is a partaking of His holiness. Partaking of His holiness. One of the great benefits is we grow. We grow in His holiness. What does this mean? The text says, for they are earthly fathers for a few days chasing us after their own pleasure. What does this mean? Like did our dads get pleasure out of making us feel horrible when they whacked us? Well, some do. Yeah, that's true. We can obviously look at the text. It, it doesn't do that. Uh, some for their own pleasure. I'm going to discipline my son. Why? Because he'll be a good, obedient worker for me out in the fields. The Algarian first century lifestyle here, right? There was great benefits of keeping your children in control. But... God does it, we said earlier, for our pleasure. That we might be partakers of His holiness. What do you do with that? We're created in the image of God. You guys know your Bibles? We are unlike the beast of the field. right? We're created in His image. But there are incommunicable attributes of God. He is 100% pure light. He's 100% holy. And we, as many of the old dead commentators, the old dead guys like to say, we begin to taste that. We begin to partake in that. Never to the fullest degree. But indeed, we do begin to partake of it and know something of it at the moment of conversion. And we, through a process, we grow in that holiness. We grow in that that sense of wanting to love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates. You see. And this is why we refer to it often as He's the, 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 the giver of all good gifts, the Father of light. We're referred to as children of light. So we reflect His holiness. We reflect as image bearers this light that God has, this holiness that, God's had, that God has. And at least we ought to. Sometimes you talk about holiness around some circles and they think that you're putting a ball and chain around their neck. But as we were very, uh, I would say, faithfully admonished in the text of Isaiah uh, over the last couple days is that, friends, without holiness, we're going to see it today, no one will see the Lord. So, so there is, through a chastising and disciplining process will you begin to say I don't want anything to do with that anymore I hate that I don't like that that's not good for me for my witness to Christ so forth and so on 
you begin to grow in His holiness. You do not, dare not think that you're growing in His holiness as you're receiving some kind of incommunicable attributes of God here in this text, do you? No. No. You're as His sons and daughters. And through suffering, He makes you more sensitive. He makes you more aware of sin and its effects and what it does. And you grow in holiness. You will despise the things that lead. Doesn't always necessitate. Doesn't always necessitate. Make that very clear. (laughs) I'll put it like this. We could play a game of Rook with playing cards. It doesn't necessitate that I go to the gambling house and begin to play poker and lose my whole life savings. That makes sense? Right? But what it does do in exercising the wickedness evil of that this could have been the worst illustration, but it's I'm, I'm preaching now, right? But in the process of recognizing the evil of that, friends, I am a very cautious, a very reserved child of light in a fallen world who was watching, expecting the snares of Satan that I could so easily fall into. Right? And so... You're growing in holiness through suffering. You're growing in holiness through teaching and correction. Because remember, it's not only physical or emotional drama. No, instruction in the Word. And you see, yeah, okay, that's okay. But the next step where that goes is not okay. Maybe you ought to hit a little bit closer to home, right? Um, There's an appropriate doctrine in the Bible of the use of alcohol. There's a totally appropriate doctrine of that. But child of God, while you may partake of a, a, and consume alcohol biblically, be honest with yourself. And the text in the Word of God, does it ever cross the line into drunkenness? Because that is forbidden in the Word of God. You see? And a growth in holiness, studying that out, are you going to let the text challenge you in that? And we could get into all kinds of things before you cast Pastor Doug off as the legalist and fundamentalist guy. You can get into all kinds of things that this world has in Vanity Fair tangling in front of us, right? To entice our senses and get us off into the entertainment. You know what entertainment is, right? Don't think, world. Study it out, friends. And you'll grow in holiness. You'll say, not for me, not for me. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to take that next step. And this really helps the people of God in a lot of ways to live a balanced, appropriate life in holiness. But look at verse 11. No chastising for the present seems to be joyous. It definitely doesn't. It's grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, you got this, again, Algarian language. It yields peaceable fruit of righteousness. And I think that he's purposefully as inspired by the Spirit using this language because they would have immediately understood this uh, aspect of uh, yielding fruit coming forth. There's plowing. There's hard work. There's watering. Oh, but it's not until you do that hard work, not until that laborious, unjoyful, at the same time, depending on how big your yard is, very grievous work, do you reap the benefits and you pluck that fruit off. And you actually get to taste that sweet fruit of the labor. And that's what the Lord does in our lives. Many believe what's going on here is that what the author is communicating is that it's usually after these really hard seasons of the Lord dealing with you through the Spirit and the Word, dealing with you through a physical ailment, dealing with you in interpersonal relationships, whatever the trial is, whatever the chastisement is, is that afterwards there's peace. There's peace. You have this tranquility that that you've let it go. I think I've shared this testimony before, but this is just my own testimony of something that I could apply to this text. A story one time that in my life, uh, we were doing good. Right? When I say good, I mean... Family, and I mean materialistically. Right? And 
I'm teaching, I had, I don't know, been teaching maybe for a year or so, uh, the adult Sunday school class at the Bible study chapel, and we got to this point where uh, I was seeing in the text that, I, that, 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 that you know what, um, I think the Lord wants me to get rid of this toy or that toy. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm sharing this to communicate my own experience of this text here. Right? Of what the Lord dealt with me. Doug Barger had to be dealt with this. Right? There was some covetousness in my heart. Right? I'm not saying you got covetousness. I'm saying I had covetousness. And I was wrestling with it. There's nothing wrong with having stuff. There's nothing wrong. I mean, come on, you know, David, Solomon, right? Nothing wrong. And the Holy Spirit kept pointing out the text. You know, this pastor over here is in prison. His family home was taken. We, our ministry was made aware of that, so forth and so on. And I'm going to challenge the church that we need to raise money for this guy. And here I am sitting on a pile of stuff. And the Holy Spirit just kept pressing down on that. I'm like, I don't like that. Let that go. I was being afflicted by what the text was showing me that I ought to care for him as if I'm in bonds and I'm sitting over here in the West on a big pile of stuff and this guy just had his home taken care of. I'm just telling you that's how the Holy Spirit was dealing with me. There's two ways I could have responded to that. I could have said, God, no, 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 that's just my own emotional, you know, guilty conscience doing that. You know? That's all my own psychological, you know, mixed up thoughts and misunderstandings about, you know, sacrificial giving. That's all that is. I could have did that. But friends, let me tell you something. After a season, week, of thinking that, stirring all that, battling over that, I was just like, you're right, God. What am I doing? Who cares about that? (laughs) Who cares about that? You're not asking me to sell my home. You're not asking me to sell the farm. You're asking me to sell a stupid toy to help another Christian who's in prison in the Middle East. And he finally was like, wake up. And I'm like, you're right. And friends, let me tell you the release, the peace, the just the contentment that came with that. It's like, yeah, this is the right thing to do. And there was no more battles. Just no more battles. I just did it. It was a blessing. This peaceable fruit of righteousness can only be experienced in our lives after the grievous, hard ground is plowed up and we refuse it not. And we let the water of the Spirit and the water of the Word rain down and inform us and direct us. And we benefit tremendously from it. Let me conclude today's message with Psalms 138. Though the Lord be high, Yet hath he respect unto the lowly. But the proud he knows afar off. Again, give us teachable spirits, Lord. Though I walk in the midst of troubles, thou wilt revive me. Thou shalt stretch forth thine hand against the wrath of my enemies, and thy right hand shall save me. The Lord will perfect, mature, that which concerneth me. And He will through discipline, through chastening. He will nurture us, instruct us, correct us, get us to where He wants us. The psalmist concludes, Thy mercy, O Lord, endures forever. Forsake not the works of Thine own hands. And friends, we are the work of His hands. And every single thing that He's going to bring into our lives that they do in our lives. Let's go to Him in prayer. Father, Lord, we thank You for this day and we thank You for, Father, the witness of Your Word, especially as we relied heavily today upon Proverbs. Lord, You inspired Proverbs and it was to make it very clear the love of a father toward a child. And Lord, as You are using that in the context of this very, very difficult time in the life of those in the first century. 
we understand that, O oh God, that You as our Father, You will use certain things, Lord, as You did in the life of the Israelites to do a heart work within us so that we could partake of this blessed peace, this blessed holiness that grows, Lord, through each and every single exercise of being chastened by You. Whether it is in the most normal means through Your Word as we seek to understand You through Your Word, study Your Word, whether it be, Lord, through providence that are, Lord, dark at times, Help us, O oh God, to see as we disclosed with Psalm 138 that You will, You promise to, finish the work that You have begun. Mature us and grow us, O oh God. Deal with us, Lord, where all of us individually need to be dealt with, including, O oh God, especially, especially me. As I have been exercised in this text, O oh God, to see something of Your fatherly, heavenly love that I think that I far too often minimized. We bless you, we glorify you, and we count it an honor to be called your sons and daughters through the work of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let us.